So good morning, goeiemorgen, Jambo, Haribo. Um, so good to be with you guys yesterday. We had a long day yesterday at that conference. It was um, an interesting space to be coming away with a lot to, to, um, to digest and to think about um, just going forward. Um, so this morning we are going to wrap up this short series that we did on the theme of cities that we see running throughout Scripture. Um, next week it will be Craig standing here. In fact, I think Cindy Craig's in the air right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Craig is on his way back. He's in, on his flight right now. We pray for God's mercies, journey's mercies, as he travels back to be with us again. So, you know, as I, as I was preparing for, um, for this short series and just reading up, I found, oh, there's such a lot more that is embedded within this theme of cities that relates to us than just simply meets the eye. Um, and so I think we've kind of just touched on what, to me at least, has been some of the highlights to give us uh, some kind of focus point as we understand this theme of cities um, in Scripture and what we could draw from it. And I hope that it, it is something that helps us see how God is at work, not only in our individual hearts, but that God is also at work in the grand scheme of cities. Um, and so we started out by noticing that our story starts out in a beautiful garden with Adam and Eve. Um, and we, we noticed there that it seems like that was the ideal setting for man and woman, a garden. Sin came in. And then as we, we recognized sin coming in, we saw that um, the beginnings of the city actually came about as a strange result of human violence through Cain. And last week we considered the two cities that receive most mention in Scripture as in the cities of Babylon, Babylon, as we, as we see it being described to us through Scripture, is the city that embodies um, the will of man as it is pitted against the desires of God. And then, of course, Jerusalem as a city that carries this prophetic call to all of God's people. It's a city that actually is more than just a place. Um, but it's also an expression of, of Yahweh's desire to be with his people, to tabernacle with his people. And so this morning we're going to look at how our story ends in a sense. Um, so this is us now looking ahead, looking forward in a prophetic way. The end of the very end that actually doesn't end. It is actually an end that is a beginning, a new beginning. And so for that, we're actually going to be focusing our attention mostly on Revelation chapter uh, 21. 
Revelation chapter 21, Revelation, the book was written by the Apostle John. And the revelation of John concludes with this final vision that he has of the marriage of heaven and earth. Where an angel shows John, and we'll unpack that a little bit, a stunning bride that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever in God joining with his covenant people. And God announces that he's come to live with humanity forever and ever, and that he's making all things new. And so finally in the story we see the bride and the groom are together. Um, there's no more long-distance relationship challenges that we have. And joy is complete, as we know for those of us who are married. And we are seeing each other face to face to face in this context of the theme of the city as we are going to try to direct our attention that way. And so that's broadly what we will be looking at in the next few minutes. Now, to understand how the story of cities draws to a close, we have to place what we are going to read in the next minute or two in context. Um, as there's a whole lot of detail that gets mentioned here and described, and it's actually quite easy to get lost in, 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 in how John describes things for us here. Um, and also just to note that there are different interpretations of what is described here. And that is just evidence just of the fact that we don't really have the full picture yet. But the day will come when we have that full and complete picture. So right now, as we are seated and standing here in this hall at this very moment, the earth and all of creation is cut off from the full life and experience of heaven. And I don't think we have to look too far to confirm this idea that we are cut off. Um, all we need to do is to observe what's happening around us. We see crime, we see inequality, we see rampant greed, we see selfishness, we see sin in many different forms as we observe. And our response to this, to use the biblical metaphor that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, is that all of creation is groaning like a woman in childbirth. And so now we have labor pains. Now we have discomfort. Now we've got nausea. Now we have cravings, we have anxiety and uncertainty, and we have regular visits to the great physician. That is our picture right now. However, despite all of that, the new creation is here. Jesus says it is at hand, it is right here taking form even when we can't see it. And so we do sense hints of this new creation and its fullness. Now and then, we see it when someone is miraculously healed 
through prayer. We see it when we have unexplainable spiritual breakthrough. We see it when we have an accurate prophetic word spoken and realized. We see glimpses of the fullness of that, but only faintly. These are the moments like when an elbow or a little foot pokes from within a pregnant woman's belly. But we know one day the fullness of heaven will be pushed forth into life like a new baby emerging from the womb here on earth. And this is the language that Paul uses to help us to understand the immediacy of what we are experiencing now. What we're going to look at in the way that John describes it is kind of different. John uses a different style, a different language to help us to understand what's going to happen. And this language in some sense helps us, but it also still gives us just a faint vision of what is to come. John uses an apocalyptic language, an end-time kind of language. An end-time language is a language that uses metaphors and symbols to describe this event in the same way that the Old Testament prophets used poetry. And so even we know that as we read through the Old Testament, there are some texts that just leave us like, wow, what, what is that? What, what is Leviticus talking about? What is the psalmist trying to describe here for us? How does Isaiah expect us to understand what he's describing there? Those kinds of language make us push into the text deeper to try to understand what it is that is being described for us here. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 21. And, and just before we get there, um, just to help us to understand what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 21, what we are going to read, um, at that stage the recorded history of man is at end and all of the ages have come and gone. Um, Jesus has gathered his church in the rapture. The tribulation has already passed. The battle of Armageddon has been fought and won by our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan had already at this stage been chained for the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. At least that's how I understand it. If you Google it, you'll probably get something else. But a new glorious temple has been established in Jerusalem. And the final rebellion against God has been dealt with and Satan has received his punishment. And then finally, the great white throne judgment had already taken place. And mankind has been judged. And then... Revelation 21, in all its fullness, gets experienced. And we're going to read that right now. And I've asked my wife to come and read it for us. I kind of put her on the spot. She didn't bring her reading glasses. Let's see how we go. Oh, 
Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am coming, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured with the wall using human measurements and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the, th the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates with 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great city, the, the, the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. 
I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Wow, that's, that's quite a picture. Lots of little pictures there, a whole lot of detail to take in, and a lot of stuff that just seems to not make sense in the way that we read it now in the 21st century. But John used language there that made some sense to him. And so when we, when we read the book of Revelation, we need to put on other lenses. We can't come to it with the lenses that we have. And so there are too many details being mentioned here for us to consider all of them. But today I'll try and highlight just a few that relate very strongly to the theme of the city and its relevance. Now in this passage, um, we see there that an angel of God has taken John to the top of a very tall and great mountain. And from there, John He's, he's looking down upon this holy city, and he actually tries to describe the indescribable. The city is like a massive, crystal clear gem with the glory of God shining from its center over all the new heavens, over all the new earth, and all of eternity is bathed in the splendor of its radiance. I sat there for about a half an hour trying to find a, a picture that could in some way look like what John is describing there. And I could find nothing. You know, it's like, and, and, it, and, and, and it, the, the significance of it to me was we don't know what the splendor of what it is that we are going to experience is going to be like. And this new Jerusalem is also called the tabernacle of God. It's also called the holy city, the city of God, celestial city. It's called also the city four square. It's also called the heavenly Jerusalem. And the city is literally heaven on earth. You know, we have that saying, heaven on earth. Ah, that means nothing. Because the heaven on earth that John describes here is nothing that we understand yet. This city is referred to in the Bible in several places. It's referred to in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, in Hebrews 12 as well as Hebrews 13. But it is most fully described for us here in Revelation 21. And in Revelation 21, God does a complete makeover of heaven and earth. Also described in some sense in Isaiah 65 and, and 
2 Peter chapter 3. And this new heaven and new earth are what some call the eternal state. You know, we talk about having eternal life. The eternal state is also a way of describing this. And this is where righteousness will dwell. First heaven and the, and the first earth have passed away and there's no more sea. Now, in the belief of the Hebrew minds, the ones who wrote Scripture for us, the sea represents chaos. It represents disorder and uncertainty with unknown dangers beneath the surface. And so here, as John sees this, he identifies that there is no sea, and in his language, that means there's no more chaos. There's no more disorder. There's no more uncertainty here. And after the recreation, God reveals the new Jerusalem. And John sees a glimpse of it in his vision. He says there in verse 4, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. It is the place where God will dwell with his people forever. And all tears are wiped away. Now there's a detail there that I, I hope you see in some way of what John is describing here. This city, this new Jerusalem, is as much a people as it is a place. John sees the new Jerusalem as a bride adorned for her husband in verse 2. But later when the angel takes John to see the bride, the lamb's wife, he shows John a detailed vision of a holy city, the new Jerusalem. And Paul uses the same imagery as John in his letters when he's describing the church. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26, he speaks of those in Christ as children of the Jerusalem that is from above. Jesus himself also described his disciples as a city upon a hill. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14 in his Sermon on the Mount. You see, in Judea, many cities were built on the tops of hills or maybe on the side of mountains. And so Jesus, as he's preaching, he points to that and he compares his disciples to that image of a city as something that could not be hidden. Now, coming back to Revelation, what John sees is the church as she is in Christ in the present and what she is becoming in Christ, a reality, as it were, that waits to be seen. And so as we continue to follow Jesus, he is, in a sense, transforming us from an old Jerusalem and all of what old Jerusalem entails into the new Jerusalem and what the new Jerusalem will encompass. 
And God's intention for us is actually expressed again in the name of the city. New Jerusalem, a place of shalom. That's the root meaning of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. A place of harmony, a place of peace. And the Prince of Peace will govern over it. And then in verse 12, John moves from describing its general appearance to its external walls. The design of the walls. And the walls of the city he's describing there as great and high. Okay, I don't know what that pick. But they are obviously a symbol of the exclusion of all that are unworthy to enter this city. Though many believers will enjoy its glory, there is still the chilling reminder that only the redeemed may enter here. In the wall itself are 12 gates guarded by 12 angels and inscribed is the names of the 12 tribes of Israel as well as the 12 apostles showing that the new Jerusalem will have among its citizens not only believers of the present age, but also Israel and all the saints of the other ages. Now, in the minds of the Hebrew people, walls hold great significance, as they do to us as well. You know, we love a good wall in Pinelands. You know, last year we, we, we did a whole series looking at Nehemiah and the process just of building a wall. We did a whole series just talking about building a wall. Now, without a wall, no city in the ancient Near East was safe from rival nations. They weren't safe from rival nations. They weren't safe from bandits, from gangs, even wild animals that could wander into the city. And the more economically and culturally developed a city was, the greater the value of things within that city. And the greater the need then, obviously, for a wall. Walls seem to always have symbolized security and safety. But here in the New Jerusalem, we no longer need security and safety. Even as I think back to Cain and how the reason for him leaving the garden and building the first city that gets mentioned in the Bible, it related to the fact that Cain didn't feel safe based on what he had done. You know, he had just killed his brother. And so he would have been worried about people coming for him and for his stuff. And so since the genesis of cities, when we reflect on Cain and where this idea of a city came from, we as fallen people acknowledge the need for walls because of the condition of our hearts as well. But there's a question that remains in relation to the city. Why are the walls still there in this new Jerusalem. Two weeks ago, Vaughn and I, we were actually talking about this. You know, why are 
why are the walls still there? You don't need walls. Um, and he mentioned to me this perspective of a particular theologian that he had read, and I went and I looked it up. And, th and this theologian had this perspective that the walls that remain in this new Jerusalem, they are like the scars, kind of like the nail holes in Jesus' hands and his feet. The walls will remind of us of something that was terribly wrong once. But in this new Jerusalem, God doesn't erase the walls. He actually incorporates them into his new city, where he will provide everything that we need, and we will have no concern for safety and security. As we continue to read there, John continues to describe what he sees in the last few verses of chapter 21. Um, and though the description of the city again does not answer all of our questions concerning eternity, and we have many, the revelation given to John does describe for us a beautiful and a glorious future for everyone who choose to put their trust in the living God. I think we're going to kind of end in terms of looking at Revelation 21 there. But as we consider what Scripture communicates to us, I notice at least that the story of the Bible and the theme of cities creates an expectation for us. Right at, us at the start, and the reason that I use that imagery of that novel, The Tale of the Two Cities, it reminds us that our story, in some sense, is also a tale of two cities. Different ways to be. Different ways to experience life. We build our own cities full of corruption and violence. We know that well. Sometimes unintentionally. But there is a city of God coming. And the biblical authors identify that we have an important role to play with the manifestation of that prophecy. Jesus clearly understood when we read through the Gospels and we follow the story of Jesus. Jesus clearly understood that Jerusalem as it stood in his day was opposed to the purposes of God. And so Jesus came and he came to be a part of helping that generation turn and avoid the fire and the flood of judgment. However, as we know, the people of that time were not interested in hearing Jesus. And so Jesus knew that he was going to lose his life by standing against the Jerusalem of his day. And so when followers of Jesus also stand against the Jerusalem of their day, of our day, there's also a real chance that we are going to lose our lives. And so when we become the city of God, when we live out the ethics of Jesus, the ethics we hold to, 
we realize are actually the opposite of the ethics of the city of the world. Cities embody human fear. They embody human scarcity. And so in the minds of city people, there's this thinking that there's never enough to go around. There's never enough for everyone. And so we feel that we need to protect ourselves from anyone who looks like they want our stuff. And this creates this cycle of violence and revenge. But as followers of Jesus, we are actually called to break that cycle. And we break that cycle of self-conceitedness, of violence and revenge. Those are extremes. And greed, when we live ourselves, living out the radical generosity that Jesus described, for example, in his Sermon on the Mount. And it's the kind of generosity that Jesus models for us. And we are called to live out. And as we know what Jesus models for us and calls us to live out appears as foolishness to the Jerusalem of our day. And so unless we practice the kind of radical generosity that Jesus describes in his Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, I think we will continue to be consumed by the empire of man. But when we prophetically point out to the Jerusalem of our day that there is this lack of care, there's this lack of ministry shown to the least of these, then the Jerusalem of our day usually responds that the least of these are actually the problem, not them. But Jesus is leading the new Jerusalem, that's us, I think, to be a movement of people who will surrender our lives out of love. Love towards others, love towards him, so that we can birth and bring about the city of God today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are at work in the way that the mountains surround Jerusalem. You are at work all around us. We thank you, Lord, that even as we reflect on your scripture this morning, that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to this Jerusalem that rejects you, to this Jerusalem that chooses to crucify those who you send. And you did that because you love us so much. Father, we ask that this love that you teach us about, this love that flows through us because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that we would spread that love. That we would be able to make connections through that love in our city, in our province, in our country, in our world. Lord, we ask that you would continue to be at work with us. Help us as we continue to wrestle with what it means to be a citizen of your kingdom. 
Continue to remind us, work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.